Welcome to Inside Outside Innovation, episode 72, with Greg Sattel. This podcast brings you the latest insights from people who know the most about building lean businesses, designing products, and disrupting entire industries with passion and precision. Learn more at insideoutside.io or on Twitter at the IO Podcast. Greg Sattel is the author of Mapping Innovation, a playbook for navigating a disruptive age. Greg talked with our host, Josh Berry, about his book and what his goal was in writing it. Everybody's in a square peg business waiting for a round hole world. And square pegs are great. You know, more pegs, more holes, faster, better, cheaper. Um, but when you come up against a round hole world, all that stuff means is that you're going to get better and better at things people care about less and less. So I think it's really important to have a full toolbox so that you can solve the problems of today and tomorrow rather than uh, just focusing on what worked last time or what Elon Musk does or something. And so when people pick up the Mapping Innovation book, Greg, uh, what should they expect? What will they be able to walk away with? Well, what I think they'll walk away with first is a better understanding of what that toolbox is Mm -hmm. and also a very practical view of uh, and what I, what I really tried hard to do was give a first-person perspective. So it wasn't what Greg Sattel thinks about this, but um, somebody who's actually done it and been successful and uh, can say, you know, here's what I was doing. Here was, here's what I was thinking. These were the challenges I came up against. Um, so any type of problem, my, my hope is that any type of problem you might be experiencing in your business that you need to solve or an opportunity you want to grasp, you're going to see somebody in that book uh, who's just like you, uh, who's made it through to the other side. And you can, for lack of a better term, you can have that conversation with Josh and Greg then switched gears and began to break down common constructs about innovation. For example, the idea that one has to keep careful track of an innovation portfolio, or that sticking to a specific process is the most important step to solve a problem. I'm not really sure innovation portfolio management is a good construct. Okay. Because no business is set up to have an innovation portfolio. To run a business, you need to solve problems, and that's mm-hmm. the function of innovation. Mm-hmm. So your innovation portfolio is really a function of the problems you're trying to solve, not mm-hmm. some wide-ranging strategies, but the problems you need to solve. And that really needs to be the focus of any innovation program, is focused on, hey, what do we need to solve, and what should we do? That's really the ultimate strategic question. What do we do? So I think the goal needs to be 
having a full toolbox so -hmm. that you can solve the problems you need to solve rather than develop some portfolio. Do you feel that there is ever a need to maybe not formally counting beans of how much you have in one bucket to another, but to have at least a conceptual discipline to not forget about uh, one area or another? Yeah. I mean, the one that the sort of basic model that was dreamed up years ago, whoever originally came up with the idea of three horizons, Mm -hmm. Google follows it is 70, 20, 10. So 70, percent of your resources should focus on current markets, current capabilities, or what a lot of people call sustaining innovation or derisively call incremental innovation. But that's really where you make your money. But then also, you know, you need to look at adjacencies. So 20% should be focused on adjacencies and then 10% on completely blue sky projects. So that's, as long as you don't take those ratios literally, you know, that you need to be going and, and bean counting, as you say. Yeah. But that's, that's a pretty good guide. For instance, if you're not working on anything that's focused on the next five or 10 years, you're probably not going to be prepared in five or 10 years. And if you're not, if you're really not giving a good look at adjacencies, then all, all you're focusing on is your day-to-day, and that's not really a good place to be. I like that, and I appreciate your focus on it, because uh, when I've observed other organizations who have attempted to try to get it down, and you know, they're all excited that now, oh, great, here's a structure or a process, and numbers, okay, great, I can start to bucket things and budget this way and allocate people this way, et cetera, uh, it, it always doesn't turn out to be very fruitful. So I appreciate the, the, at least the acknowledgement of conceptually, we need to be thinking uh, that you, yes, you're doing a lot on the core. And yes, that's going to be the primary, the sustaining innovation. There's going to be a primary moneymaker and, and where a lot of return is going to come from. But if it helps you continue to be reminded of, are we doing additional stuff out there, maybe in your other boxes in your matrix, then I think that it, it, there is some helpfulness to thinking about it. Maybe not in a tra- an actual numbers portfolio, but at least thinking about it as you have different uh, classifications of the work that you're doing. Right. And it's always, I think the correct construct is what problems are we trying to solve? Mm-hmm. So obviously, most of our efforts have to go towards solving the problems of today. The markets we're in now, the capabilities we're in now. We need to serve customers better, and we need to to increase our capabilities. That is clear, right? But if that's all you're doing, you know, a curveball is going to come and you're not going to be ready for it. So I like to look at companies like IBM and Microsoft. Uh, Just a few years ago, people were saying, you know, Microsoft's finished. They missed mobile. Uh, Steve Ballmer said that incredibly stupid thing about how nobody's going to buy an iPhone. And people say, oh, Microsoft's finished. They just can't compete anymore. They're a big, old, slow dinosaur. And they are. Um, And they don't adapt very well. But if you look at their actual results in the 10 years since uh, Steve Ballmer said that, in the 10 years since the the iPhone was launched, you're looking at 10%, better than 10%, top-line growth, and better than 30% margins. 
that's you know that's not good performance that's fantastic performance and the reason why isn't that they adapted so well but because they started building a cloud business back in 2000 2001 2002 somewhere around there before anybody knew what a cloud business was they were building the technology and they've had microsoft research labs for 25 years preparing for when operating systems weren't going to be a, a, a cash machine anymore and now that cloud business is growing at better than 100 percent a year and ibm is in a, a very similar situation right now where you know they were making a lot of money in installed systems going to companies and saying okay if you need an inventory system or a manufacturing logistics system or whatever it is Give us a big contract. We'll design the whole thing, run the whole thing for you. Uh, and they made a lot of money doing that. And then comes the cloud, and it's killing them. 20 straight quarters of de declining revenue growth. Part of the reason for that is some divestments they've made. But that, you know, that's a, a pretty big hole to dig yourself out of. At the same time, you know, they've been working on Watson and in artificial intelligence mm -hmm. for, since 2005 or six, something like that. They've been working on quantum computing since 1993. And you're talking about a company that has gone through uh, five or six of these ridiculous upheavals where they were, the, you know, so dominant in tabulating machines. And then they got sort of blindsided by digital computing. And then they went and they, uh, by 1960, they, they built the same dominance in mainframes and kept that for 20 years. And then that sort of crashed on them. And they built the whole PC environment. And then the switch from being focused on their technology stack to the services and the, the stack of their customers' business processes. And now this is, you know, this is another one. So, you know, that's just an amazing track record that these companies have. And they've adapted horribly to every single technology that's, well, I wouldn't say every, uh, every single, some they've, they've adapted to better than others. But they haven't really been, no one would call IBM or Microsoft a nimble company. Sure. But because they started preparing long, long before for the day when they couldn't make money on their core business anymore, they're both still thriving companies, billions of dollars of profit every year. And, and I'd like to hang on that a little bit and then put it into a kind of a mid-market perspective. Because uh, one of the things that I appreciated about your book and that I've seen in some of your other writings, Greg, is that you know, those large organizations, yes, can put some resources towards what you talk about in, in your framework as basic research, right? They can, they can be working on some of those things that are quite a ways out there. And some midsize organizations may not think that they have the resources to be able to spin up their own labs to do a lot of that same sort of work and really bet on stuff that's 5, 10, 20, 25 years out there as we're talking about here. But, but you bring up some interesting examples and ideas of how many organizations, regardless of their size, can actually get involved in some of that basic research, right? Absolutely. Uh, it was one of the things that surprised me. When you're talking about investing in this stuff, 
you know, the investment for the most part is much more on the level of, let's say, a chamber of commerce membership than it is, you know, like a hospital wing or something like that. Mm -hmm. You're not talking about a significant amount of resources that need to be in, uh, invested in basic research because the vast majority of that research is federally funded and done through academic institutions. So most of it is publicly available. So that's your first line of defense right there is uh, your local universities. How can you build relationships with researchers at local universities, either through supporting their work through some payments in kind or establishing some sort of lecture series? Uh, I know one company gives out academic prizes of a couple of thousand dollars, you know, to a postdoc is, is a significant amount of money. But, you know, academics aren't, first of all, not all the, you know, it's not like anybody's breaking down their door and they didn't get into research for the money in the first place. Mm -hmm. So you're not talking about something that's, that's terribly resource intensive. You know, researchers, they want to, they want their work to have an impact. There's just, it's not like there's some industry hotline they can call up every time they make some discovery, but they're, you know, it's, their careers and their prestige is very much predicated on them understanding the latest research. What they really need is a good sense of uh, real-world problems. So from that point of view, it's a real opportunity for them to, to talk to companies. Beyond your local universities, there are just a wide, wide array of first of all, government programs. Um, if you look at the manufacturing hubs, I think there's 14 of them now. There are associate memberships, which again, the number that was cited to me was anywhere from zero to $15,000 for an annual membership, depending on the size of the company. That's really something anybody can afford. Absolutely. And, and you know, to get a front row seat in something like advanced fabrics or wide gap se semiconductors or additive manufacturing. Or, I can't remember what all of them are. There's 14 of them. If there's something called the, it used to be called Nano Design Works, but I think they changed it. But it's a program at Argonne National Laboratory that, uh, you know, you can just call them up and tell them about the problem you're trying to solve in nanotechnology and, or plasma physics or whatever it is. And if it's an interesting enough problem, they'll help you write the federal grant and they'll help you solve it. There's the Hollings Manufacturing Initiative that will, their whole job is to point you to resources. There is the Materials Genome Initiative. One of the, one of the most interesting ones is the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research, which is developing next generation batteries. And what the director of this center called, nicknamed Jay Caesar, uh, what he told me is one of their most active companies involved in it is a startup. Not because that, uh, you know, they invested so much money into it, but because they've been so active. Sure. And, and there's also an increasing trend 
if you look at the Fuse program at GE, if you look at what IBM's doing with Watson, and so many others, the big technology companies now are, are becoming more like almost utility companies, where they're providing the technological electricity. And they don't really want to be in the business of chasing down every single business model that can possibly come from the technology that they create. So they're very enthusiastic of partnerships and running accelerators and incubators. So they're always looking for partners that can build applications on the basic technologies that they're building. So there really is so much opportunity to get on the ground floor of these things. And if you think about it, there's going to be something like 20 or 30,000 scientific papers published this year. Chances are at least one of those are going to affect your industry. You want to find, you want to find out about that a year or two before your competitors, not a year or two after. Absolutely, Greg. I think that's a great list of, uh, and very actionable list uh, for organizations to be able to go out and find. Kind of segueing a bit, as since you mentioned partnerships, uh, obviously they're in the academic world or government or other labs. One of the things that we hear from a lot of mid-market organizations is trying to understand, especially in a breakthrough or disruptive innovation space, uh, where there's opportunities for partnership with startup organizations. So uh, any startups pre-VC, especially if, if it's an organization who doesn't have a venture capital arm yet, uh, it seems to be a hot trend to figure out how could we collaborate with startups as one of the potential uh, tactics that could fit into their innovation strategy. Uh, did you find anything in the research or any best practices or ideas that might help people uh, or, or things to avoid in that realm? What I would do is pursue the same path as basic research, because those are the same ecosystems. When you look at these hot breakthrough startups that the VCs are just drooling over, you know, you need to go where the VCs are. And take a technology like CRISPR, which is uh, mm -hmm. this super powerful gene editing. Um, I was talking to a VC active in the field. I said, how do you identify companies? He said, you know, we go, to comp we go to the conferences. We embed ourselves in the scientific community, and that's where we find our, our opportunities. And, you know, as a company, you can do the same thing. If you were interested in advanced fabrics or advanced materials, if you go to the Manufacturing Innovation Hub, you'll find not only academics there, but also other companies working in the space and startups. That's why the, the fees range from zero, <laughs> um, <laughs> because they want to attract startups. Yeah. Um, and when we say startups, so many of these startups are researchers um, who've discovered something and want to commercialize it. So you'll find them in the same places. So Thank you. that's really, you know, again, follow the science and follow the people who are trying to solve similar problems that you are. That wraps up another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about Greg or contact him to chat, 
go to digitaltonto.com. There's a link in our show notes as well. If you've got a few minutes, leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, go out and innovate.